Romans chapter 11. And tonight we come to verses 13 through 16. Uh, Romans 11, verses 13 through 16. We have already seen the Apostle Paul teach two important truths in this passage. Uh, First, he taught us that God has brought a hardening upon the Jews as judgment for their sin. Uh, The Jews were the most privileged people on earth. They had been given more grace than any other nation. They had the law, the prophets, the temple, the sacrifices, a rich history of stories pointing them to faith in the true God. And when their Messiah came, they not only rejected him, but they murdered him. And just as the prophets had prophesied and just as Jesus had taught, God has now given them over to hardness of heart, So that the Jews will not believe and they will not repent. They will not be saved. And this is just. This is justice. Uh, When you consider the worth of Jesus Christ. The crime of rejecting the Messiah. It's a heinous crime. But lest we become anti-Semitic. Lest we begin to put a target on the back of the Jewish people and and start to despise the Jews, Paul then taught us a second truth in verses 11 and 12. He taught us that God had a purpose in Israel's sin. And that purpose was that through their sin, the gospel would go to the rest of the world. And then there was purpose on top of purpose. Because as the Gentiles embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, their conversion would lead to Israelites turning to the Lord and believing. That there would be Jews who would become jealous. That the Gentiles are embracing their Messiah that God had promised to them. And that through this holy jealousy, these Jews would come to salvation. So the curse, this hardening that God has brought upon Israel It's not a total hardening. It's a partial hardening. And there will be some among the Jews, even in our day, just as it was true in Paul's day, just as it will be true in the future. There will be some among the Jews whom God saves. And he will save them through the gospel having gone to the Gentiles. Now, one objection that people sometimes have to that understanding comes from verse 11. So look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, some people argue that Israel, there at the end of the verse, to make Israel jealous. Some people argue that Israel here must refer to the whole nation. That the whole nation will become jealous and that through that jealousy, the whole nation of Israel will come to Christ. And since that hasn't happened and since that isn't happening, people say that must be referring to some great future event. But I would suggest that Paul is using the word Israel here just like he uses the word world in verse 15. So look at verse 15. 
In verse 15, Paul says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, now just stop there. He is talking about how Israel's rejection of Jesus leads to the world being reconciled to God. But when Paul talks about the world being reconciled to God, does he mean all the people in the world? Does he mean that every individual in the world is going to come to Christ? No. We know from other passages that what he's referring to here is people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. This verse isn't universalism. It isn't that every individual in the world is going to be saved. But people from all over the world, ultimately from every people group, are coming to Christ. World, in verse 15, means all of those people in the world chosen by God will believe on Christ. Well, I would suggest that's exactly how Paul is using the word Israel in verse 11. He's not speaking about the whole nation. He's speaking about the true Israel within Israel. The Israel he's been talking about since verses 1 through 6, where he talked about this remnant chosen by grace. That there is an elect Israel, Jews, who will be aroused to a holy jealousy and will believe and will be saved. And it's happening now. Over the last several decades, there have been more and more movements popping up. Even among the Gentiles, among us, seeking to win Jews to Christ. Uh, You may have heard of Jews for Jesus, for example, uh, is a very common one. Now, as we come to verses 13 through 16, Paul starts moving from that doctrine to the application. Now we're getting to the application. Uh, He isn't just teaching theology for the sake of theology. He has a very practical goal in mind. Uh, Paul has something he wants to say, and in particular, he wants to say it to Gentile Christians. And so in verse 13, he narrows in. Do you see that? He says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Now, now this letter was going to be read at the church in Rome, which had both Jews and Gentiles. But just as Paul sometimes addresses husbands and wives, sometimes as he addresses masters or servants, here he is singling out a group. He is speaking specifically to the Gentiles in this church. And what does he want to say to them? What is is in Paul's heart? What is he getting at here practically that he wants the Gentiles to hear? Well, he's going to say it twice in the coming verses very explicitly. So let me show you that first. Verse 18. Verse 18. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. The branches are unbelieving Jews. Do not be arrogant, Gentiles. And then look again at the end of verse 20. The end of verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. At its core, the message of Romans 11 is an ethical message about how we are to relate to those who don't believe on our Lord. It's about how we are to relate to unbelievers. We are not to be haughty. We are not to give way to pride. Our response to God's salvation of our souls must be humility. 
So with that in the back of your mind, knowing that that's what Paul is after, that that's where he's taking us, be humble, don't be arrogant towards those around you who are unbelieving. Now let's read verses 13 through 16. And since we're largely Gentiles in this room, this is directed straight at us. Okay? Verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles... I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, looking at these four verses, I want to uh, break this message up into two parts. First, a magnified ministry. And second, a marvelous miracle. So a magnified ministry, that's verses 13 and 14. And then a marvelous miracle, that's verses 15 and 16. So let's, let's jump in. First, a magnified ministry. There in verses 13 and 14, Paul talks about his own ministry. He has been called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the man chosen by God, appointed by Christ to lead the way in getting the gospel to the pagan nations. And this is a ministry that is dear to Paul. Uh, Though he is a Jew, he loves Gentiles. He longs for their salvation. He goes from city to city pleading with Corinthians and Thessalonians and Ephesians and Romans to be saved. His body bears the marks of being whipped and being stoned and spending nights in dank prisons out of his commitment to get the gospel to the Gentiles. When you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, you can hear the passion in his voice as he pleads for those Gentiles to return to the true gospel. Apostle to the Gentiles wasn't just a job title for Paul. It was part of his identity. It was was in his heart. It, It was part of his life. He was compelled by the love of Christ To go to the nations. In 1 Corinthians 9.16 he said, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The missionary heart of Paul was zealous. It was like Jeremiah. He had a fire shut up in his bones and he needed to let it out. He reminded the Thessalonians how when he came to them and spoke truth to them, he did so gently like a mother caring for her own children. That was the kind of love he had for Gentiles. He tells them that he was ready not just to share the gospel with them, but his very life because of how dear these people were to him. Paul especially longed to see the name of Jesus heard by peoples who had never heard it before. When we get to Romans 15 verses 20 and 21, Uh, We will hear Paul say, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard 
will understand. So Paul sees his ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles as as one of fulfilling the glorious promises of God in the Old Testament about the light of God's glory going all over the earth to all the world, to all the nations. His ministry to the Gentiles is an awesome thing. But in Romans 11 verse 13, Paul says that he magnifies his ministry even higher than that. That is, in his mind, he chooses to see the ministry that God has given him as something even greater than simply getting the gospel to the world. Um... He gives all of himself to this mission. Everything he has. That somehow through his ministry to the Gentiles, not only they will be reached, but his fellow Jews will become jealous and be saved. Uh, To be more precise, Paul says that he makes the most of his ministry because he is hoping that through Gentiles being saved, God will fulfill what he has promised And call some of Paul's own kinsmen to be aroused to this holy jealousy and to repent and to have faith in Christ. Now, frankly, I think Paul had seen some of this. I don't think this is just hypothetical for Paul. I think he had witnessed this. He he knows what God has promised in Deuteronomy. He quoted it in Romans 10 verse 19. Right? He, he knew where God had promised that he would, he would make Israel jealous through pagan nations. And as Paul traveled to city, to city, to city, what, what was his approach? He would go to the Jews first. He would preach in the Jewish synagogue to Jewish people. And he would do this until he was rejected, as he almost always was. Then, and only then... He would go to the Gentiles of the city and preach to them. And often many Gentiles believed and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. But it might not have been that from time to time, Paul encountered Jews who had initially rejected the gospel, rejected his teaching in the synagogue, but after seeing the Gentiles in their town embrace the gospel, after seeing the gospel transform some of the Gentiles in that city, after witnessing the power of the gospel to change lives, some of those Jews who initially rejected the gospel became repentant. They were ashamed that they had rejected it. They they came to Christ. And a prime example is what happened in Corinth. Because after Paul was rejected by the Jews in the synagogue of that city, he started preaching in the house next door. He started preaching to Gentiles in the house next door to the synagogue. And do you remember what we read in the book of Acts? The chief elder of the synagogue was converted to Christ. Isn't that an example of what we're reading about? How through his ministry to the Gentiles, some of his own kinsmen are being brought in. So this this isn't some abstract thing for Paul. He's seen this happen. And do you see the encouragement that there is here for our involvement in Christian missions? Do you see the glory here for those who are missionaries and those who are actively praying for and supporting and sending out missionaries? We are part of something bigger than we may have realized. As we are seeking to win people to Jesus 
in Siberia and Papua New Guinea and Ecuador and Las Vegas, right? As we are part of God's plan to save people saved in all of those parts of the world, we are also part of that plan to, through that mission, ultimately bring the full number of true Jews into the kingdom. Real Jewish men and women and children are being saved as they see the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came from them and their people having an impact on the world. The gospel came from the Jews to us. Now we're able to send missionaries to them saying, see what the gospel has done for us. See how, is it, how it has changed us, redeemed us, saved us. And some by God's grace are being saved through that witness. And so as you are supporting the work of missions to the nations, you are also supporting God's work of saving Paul's kinsmen, fellow Jews. So that's a magnified ministry, a magnified ministry. But now let's look at the marvelous miracle. This is verses 15 and 16, a marvelous miracle, okay? Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So the Jews rejected Jesus, and that led to him being put on a cross, and that led to salvation being accomplished. They rejected Jesus, and it led to the gospel leaving Jerusalem and going out beyond Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Not every individual is now reconciled to God, but people all over this planet have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ because, because the Jews rejected Jesus and the gospel was sent out. Paul was seeing that begin to happen in his day. You and I are seeing that work much closer to completion. Uh, there are fewer people groups today where there are no Christians than there ever has been in human history. I believe we are near the end of that work of the gospel going to all the peoples. So Israel's sin led the world to something glorious. Israel's sin of rejecting Jesus is a testimony of how God can work through sin for eternal good. He can take our sin and make good out of it. But Paul is arguing, just like he did last week, from the lesser to the greater. He loves doing this, arguing from the lesser to the greater. If the Jews rejected Jesus and all that glory happened, the salvation of people all over the world, if the Jews rejected Jesus and all that happened, how much greater when the full number of Jews have accepted the gospel? When the full number of the physical descendants of Abraham have, have believed on Christ, he says, what is that but life from the dead? Do you see that there? Life from the dead. I, I think he may intentionally be using a double meaning here. Uh, first, when Jews have hated Christ, rejected him, despised him, and then come to accept him, how else can we describe that than other as a, as a spiritual resurrection? Right? Uh, there is a sense in which every conversion is, is life from the dead. It's, it's true for Gentiles, it's true for Jews, just it's perhaps more stark in the case of the Jews. In Paul's day, the Gentiles largely lived in ignorance. 
In Paul's day, most Gentiles didn't know a thing about Jesus, and they were saved out of their ignorance to Jesus Christ. But the Jews were being saved out of willful rejection of Jesus Christ. So this is a miracle of miracles. This is a radical change of nature, a change of heart, a change of life. It's a life from the dead. But then second, when God has completed his work of accepting all his chosen Jews and having brought into his kingdom as the mission to the Gentiles was being accomplished, all those who were his, then Paul says there will be true life from the dead. For when all of God's people from Jew and Gentile have been saved, and the full number have been gathered in, Jesus will come back, will come back, the dead will be raised, and the new age, the age of eternity, will begin. And we will know life as we have never known it before. So then in verse 16, in verse 16, Paul makes this interesting statement using two word pictures. So make sure you see both word pictures. First, he talks about dough. And he says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now, Israel was commanded in Numbers 15 to have this practice throughout their generations. When they made a loaf of bread, they were to take some of the dough and they were to offer it first as an offering to God. That first bit of dough from the bread that they were baking was to be set aside. It was to be taken to a place of sacrifice to God. It would often serve as food for priests. Even in pagan religions, just as we have a custom of saying a prayer over our meals and blessing our food, even in pagan religions, they would often take a portion of their food right before they started eating and they would offer it in some fashion to their pagan god. So this was a practice that both the Jews in this Roman church could relate to and the Gentiles in this Roman church could relate to. And Paul is speaking specifically here to the Gentiles. And his point is an obvious one. Whatever is true of the first fruits, whatever is true of that first bit of dough that you pulled off of the lump for the sacrifice, well, that's true of the whole lump. What is true of that part is going to be true of the whole. Make sense? Because it comes from the same lump. Then he changes the picture to a tree. And this is actually the better picture, I think. This is, this is a more precise picture. And that's why he's going to stick with this picture through the whole next paragraph that we'll look at next time. Uh, see what he says here. He says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So what is true of the root of a tree will usually be true of its branches. If the root is good, if the root is strong, so will be the branches. If the root is bad, if the root is weak, you'll have bad and weak branches. What's true of the root is true of the branches. What Paul is describing here in these pictures is the people of God throughout the generations. He's describing the people of God from Adam to the very last believer who believes before Jesus comes back. And the first fruits of the dough, the, the root of the tree, are those very first believers. So we think about Adam, Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and David, and Solomon. We think about these people. They're the root of this tree. They are the first fruits of this dough. 
And what cannot be missed as we look at the, the lump of God's people, as we look at the tree of God's people, is that when you look at the root, it's a Jewish root. It's a Jewish root. Yes, I know Rahab's in there. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's, the occasional, there's the occasional Gentile in the root of the tree of God's people, but they're the exception. When you look at the people of God over history, and you say that the root are those very first believers, they are almost all Jewish. And they were holy. They were set apart by God. They were men and women of faith. Frankly, the Gentile Christians in Rome were very happy to say, Oh, Abraham is great. We love Abraham. Oh, we love Moses. We love David. Yeah, we love those guys. They love to count themselves among people like that. But oh, the hypocrisy. Because as these Gentile Christians stood on the shoulders of Jewish saints like Abraham and Moses, they were being tempted to despise and demean the physical descendants of those same people in their own day. Paul's point seems to be that just as those first Jewish believers were holy men, men of godliness, also women, women of godliness, so now the lump of dough is still being completed. The branches of the tree are still growing and Jewish believers are a part of that. And these first century Jewish believers, Paul's day, will also be holy men and women. And in our day, in, in 2017, the branches of that tree are still growing. The, the lump is still being filled in. And there are Jewish men and women being set apart by God, brought to faith in Christ who are part of that. And so we ought not to despise the Jewish people. We ought to put away our arrogance towards the Jews. We're part of a, a root that's a Jewish, you know, we're part of a tree that has Jewish roots. And we've been brought in, Paul's going to say. So don't despise the Jews. Put, put away your negative attitude that says that, that Jews are anti-Jesus and anti-God and anti-Christian and that we should treat them with hostility. We are not to treat the Jews as mortal enemies of God's people. We're not to treat them and, and think of them only as the, the murderers of Jesus without any hope for salvation. No, for just like the godly Jewish believers at the root of this tree, there are going to be many godly Jewish believers along the trunk and the branches and the leaves and every other part. Now, this was an issue in this church in Rome, which is why Paul is addressing it. And so while it may not seem something that's super relevant to us, it may be more relevant than we think. And so let me draw out three points of application, and we'll be done. Three points of application. First, we should rejoice that Jews in our day are being added to God's people. This is happening. Now, let me read to you just a little snippet of a report from two fellows. This is from Michael Ashcraft and Mark Ellis. It's a little dated. It's from 2015. Okay, from 2015. But here's, here's the report that they gave. It's, it's good news. Uh, the headline of their report was this. More and more Jews finding Jesus in Israel. And here's how their report begins. The first wave of Jews coming to Jesus hit in the 1970s in America. The second wave were Russian Jews in the 1990s. And now... In what some observers are calling a third wave, Jews in Israel are coming to faith in increasing numbers. 
I have never seen the breakthrough like we're seeing now, said Tuvia Zaretsky, chairman of the board for the Israel branch of Jews for Jesus. We're seeing a steady stream of Israelis who are coming to Jesus from all walks of life, though usually from among the young. There seems to be a greater openness to spiritual input. We're thinking it's a third wave of ingathering. In the 1990s, there were about 3,000 Messianic Jews in Israel. Today, we think that number is 20,000. One source estimates 150 congregations of like-minded believers in Israel. Of Israel's 84 cities and towns, 81 now have at least one Messianic Bible study. Now, is that good news? Isn't that a good report? Is that what, what we want to hear? Messianic Jews, Christian Jews are still a tiny minority. They are still less than 1% of the Jewish population in Israel. Uh, believing Jews, I think, will always be a remnant, a small remnant, but their numbers are growing. And we ought to praise God for that. We ought to rejoice. Second application. We should put away all traces of anti-Semitism in our lives. We should put away all traces of anti-Semitism in our lives. The church of Jesus Christ has a shameful history here. Great men of faith have erred when it comes to the Jews. Rather than seeing the Jews as a mission field, rather than seeing the Jews as a group to pray for, to long for their salvation, many have treated them as, as something subhuman. Listen to what one great man of faith said. He said, what shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? First, we should set fire to their synagogues or schools. This is to be done in the honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and their Talmudic writings in which such idolatry lies, cursing and blasphemy are taught, be taken away from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. They have no business in the countryside. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken away from them. And seventh, I recommend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. But if we are afraid that they might harm us, or our wives, our children, our servants, our cattle, then let us emulate the common sense of other nations, like France, Spain, and Bohemia. Let's eject them forever from our country. Can you believe that was written by a Christian? That was written by Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Not just any Christian, the the, the head of the Protestant Reformation. The man who, who helped bring about the recovery of the gospel. A man passionate about the message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But just as many dear believers here in the American South bought the lie that people of black skin were worthless than people of white skin. And they were true believers. 
They just had a major blind spot. So there have been many in the history of the church of Christ who have bought the lie that somehow the Jews are a cursed race and that they are to be treated with, with contempt. Are they cursed? Well, as a people, it's true that generally the Jews are under the hardening of God. But they are not to be treated by us with contempt. They are to be loved. They are to be prayed for. They are to be befriended. They are to be pursued with gospel zeal. And so we're to put away all anti-Semitism in our lives. We are not to make jokes that demean Jewish people. We are not to use ethnic slurs or other language that treats Jews improperly. We shouldn't think or speak of Jewish people, uh, or anybody for that matter, using uh, group stereotypes. Rather, we are to treat all people with respect and with dignity and with love and compassion. And if God brings Jewish neighbors into our path, we are to love them as we love ourselves. Third, third application. We should see that ethnicity, ethnicity is neither a free pass nor an obstacle to getting to heaven. Ethnicity is neither a free pass nor an obstacle to getting to heaven. So some today have the notion that the Jews just get a free pass to heaven because they're Jews, because they're Abraham's physical descendants, they just automatically go to heaven. That is a lie. Uh, Romans 19 11 wouldn't even make sense if that were true. Others, especially in the Christian history, have had the idea that Jews just can't go to heaven because they're Jews and because of what the Jewish people did to Christ. But that too was a lie. Some of the same Jews who shouted, crucify him in the Gospels, were likely saved by the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. So being a Jew neither gets you into heaven, nor does it keep you from heaven. At the end of the day, it is not ethnicity that matters. It's whether or not you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some Jews have thought that Gentiles could never be a part of God's people. Uh, there was a day when many Jews would have said, God is the God of the Jews only. He's not the God of the Gentiles. And you Gentiles, heaven isn't for you. Others might say, now that the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, it's easier to be saved if you're a Gentile. You're not under a curse. But again, ethnicity has nothing to do with it because every conversion to Christ is a miracle. Every conversion to Christ is a work of grace. Every person coming to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus is a trophy displaying the power of God to do the supernatural. Ethnicity does not play into your salvation or your condemnation. Ethnicity is not what matters here. Faith is what matters. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are from, what it all comes down to is this. Have you taken Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you given your allegiance to Him as your Lord? Not just your parents' Lord. Not just the, the Lord that's worshipped at your church. Is He yours? Your personal Savior? On the last day, as you stand before Him, is that young lady who I mentioned this morning, she, she died this morning. 
And now, now she has to give an account. Your day of account, my day of accounting is coming. What will we hear? Will we hear, depart from me, for I never knew you. Or will we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? That is what matters, and not our ethnicity. Amen? Amen.